Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for another show of Heal Thyself? Because I am. I am hyped up, ready to deliver some good information to you, ready to review some products, ready to get in a bomb guest, ready to drop some bombs, ready to go on with it. So without further ado, let's just get right to the show. I don't know how I didn't make this a show from day one. Constipation, man. All right, listen, if you don't think you're constipated, then that's one thing, okay? But if you're constipated and you know it and you're not going day to day, that's a big issue, right? So we need to speak about constipation because we need to talk about pooping. If I could do a whole episode on pooping, it would be on pooping. But for us, we have to understand the implications of what happens when we're constipated, all right? So about 12 to 19% of people suffer from constipation. That's too much already, right? It's a symptom, it's not a disease. Constipation always has an underlying root cause to it. More women than men, actually about three times more. And you definitely see this in an older population, 65 and over. Non-whites especially are ones that are prone to constipation. Other risk factors, obesity, sedentary life, I mean, That's for sure. I mean, that's an obvious one, right? You're not moving. Nothing else is moving within you. Pregnancy, for sure. I know that there's many women listening to the show that may have experienced constipation or have. And um, I will be speaking a little bit about some recommendations too. So constipation means that you have three bowel movements per week, right? And actually, there's some doctors out there that'll say, this is normal. This is good. This is fine. It's not normal. You can't be having three bowel movements per week. That is not normal. Take my word for it. Please do not have three bowel movements per week. And if you do, you got to seek a, seek a doctor to help you start moving things around, all right? So for me, if you're not going daily, which is optimal, or actually optimal is actually going after every single meal, that'd be great. Uh, that's not really the regular for a lot of the patients that I get or for what I hear. But if you ain't pooping, you ain't healthy, period. All right, so the most common type of constipation is something called atonic constipation. That's just when the colon is lazy. It's just blah. It's not moving, right? All that poop is in your colon. It's supposed to move out, but the colon is like blah. It's like a wet noodle, wet spaghetti noodle. Whereas spastic one, that's the opposite one. It's a less common type of constipation, but that's when the colon is super spastic. So it's not letting anything through, right? So it's two sides of the spectrum. Incidence of it has been steadily rising since 1993. And the largest rise has been seen in children. Top five most common reasons for outpatient visits in GI physicians is children with constipation, believe it or not. Now, I have a lot of theories to that. For sure, if your child has constipation, you got to look at different factors. None of the sh- none of the short end being food, right? And getting them off dairy. That's going to be major. All right. So not only are we talking about frequency of going to the bathroom, but you got to talk about quality, right? Got to talk about quality. If it's difficult to pass a stool, it's likely a dietary root cause. Stools should never, never sink all the way to the bottom. They should actually partially float. If it's not floating, that may may be a sign that you're not getting enough plant food. Or if conversely saying, if it's it's not breaking down fat and it's floating, but it's greasy and clay colored and it's cloudy and, and it's foul smelling, then you're likely not breaking down fat and it might be an issue with your digestive system upstream. So again, you gotta, Pay attention to your poop, really. There's something called a Bristol stool chart, which you all can Google if you're driving. Whenever you pull over, you can look at it. It's called a Bristol stool chart, and it has types one through seven for poop, right? And you'll see type one is like small little pellets. That's like Skittles. Whereas type two or three are more like rock hard, like Snickers formed, but like like Snickers. And then type four is something that is more optimal, like a snake, 
right? That's the type four. Now, as you go up past type four, you get five, six, and seven, which is progressively being watered down in something like diarrhea now on the other end of the spectrum. So if you're falling within types one, types two, types three, consider yourself constipated. Okay. So I had this friend of mine, her niece was like one struggling to pass a stool and two, it was like little Skittles. So type one on the Bristol stool chart. And I went over the diet immediately. And this girl was having lots of cheese and lots of milk. Never again did she have Skittle poop since she removed the milk from her diet, right? Which is a major cause of constipation, especially in children. And this girl was like kind of scared of her poops now because they were all formed and, and looking priceless. But she was used to the Skittle poops because that's what she thought it was to pass a bowel. Anyway, digressing. So some causes, some but not limited to diet. Of course, diet. Poor nutrition, under eating. If you're fasting a long time, you ain't going to be passing a lot of bowels. Sure. Inadequate hydration. Think about it. The days that you are really dehydrated, how well your stools are coming. But fiber, 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 fiber. How many times do I talk about fiber on the show? It's so important because fiber is the macronutrient. It is the nutrient that we need in our body every day. The RDA uh, recommendation is absurd to me. 20 to 25, that is absurd. That is way too low. Typically, the chi uh, children and, um, and American adults get about 10 to 15 grams of dietary fiber a day. That's crazy. They don't even have, they don't even hit the absurdly low level. Really, really, that's about two to four times less. I even say about 70 grams and over is optimal for people to be eating fiber. So fiber is so, so important. Now, there are some contraindications for having high fiber diet. So make sure you check with your doctor. Okay. But remember, the RDA is not a recommendation that is based on to keeping you healthy. The RDA recommendation of 20 to 25 grams is the average safety, is the average for just safety, right? Not optimization, average for just safety. And that goes the same for vitamins, right? The, the, the dosage they give you is just so you don't develop a deficiency disease. What are some other dietary causes? Too much meat, too many simple carbs. USDA estimates that we consume about 150 pounds of sugar per year and sugar in itself will slow up the transit time. Imagine that then you have with too little fiber or something like a carnivore diet where they're just eating meat and meat and no fiber, which is really worrisome for me in itself and what it does to the microbiome, but you ain't gonna be pooping regularly if you're eating like that. So remember, this is why I always talk about plant food because that fiber macronutrient is so important. Other causes, there's some metabolic causes like electrolyte imbalances for sure. That causes osmotic changes. So you're not getting enough or too little water into your stool. Um, kidney, kidney issues for sure, diabetes, pregnancy, as I mentioned. We also see this very common in drugs, medications, opioid-induced. I've seen some of the worst constipation in my life at the cancer hospital I worked at because these folks were on opioids for their pain after surgery. And yeah, it's really, really horrible. Um, so I, I feel for that. And, and again, you have to work with uh, uh, someone who is specializing in this that can help you really pass your bowels. But it's a big obstacle when it comes to the opioids. What else? Antacids. I have a whole show on that. Go back and check, check it. Antidepressants, barium sulfate, diuretics, hypotensive, contraceptives certainly can cause constipation. Laxative. Well, here's the problem with laxative. Your body gets used to it. They're refractory, right? It builds up a tolerance in the body, and then you're relying on outside stimulus to pass a bowel. So it can be a big issue if you're using laxative over and over and over. What else? Hormonal, for sure. If you have thyroid issues, particularly hypothyroid, that one of, uh, constipation is one of the main indicators of hypothyroid in the whole picture. 
constipation in folks with high amounts of something called beta-glucuronidase, right? And this goes back to the show with Carrie Jones where we spoke about estrogen metabolism, right? In the microbiome, there's a portion of it called the estrobolome, right? That's where the estrogen is basically being removed. But certain species have high amounts or high level of beta-glucuronidase. And you can actually check your level of beta-glucuronidase on a poop test. And what that enzyme basically does is when your liver conjugates estrogen, puts it in the poop, transit, the whole point is for you to poop out the excess estrogen. But what happens is beta-glucuronidase, the way that Carrie Jones uh, illustrated it is like having a present with a bow, beta-glucuronidase opens up that bow and releases all of that unconjugated or deconjugated estrogen. And it goes back to in its active form right back in the body. So, and then it's increasing excess estrogen into the body, which is a major concern for hormonal cancers, but certainly anyone with hormonal issues. So or just in general, right? We don't want excess estrogen in our body, particularly because we're exposed to so much estrogen from the outside as a whole anyway. So it's very, very important if you have breast cancer or any sort of hormonal cancers or any hormonal issues to be pooping every single day. Okay, so uh, what else? Psychiatric, neurological for sure, neurodegenerative diseases, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, depression, psychosis, anxiety, all these things can uh, affect, right? Because your brain and your nerves are connected and those nerves are connected to your, actually your whole digestive system, particularly in the colon, they can cause a spastic colon or atonic colon. For sure, the health of your gut is gonna be reflected. This is why actually probiotics do help some people when it comes to constipation. Dysbiosis or the imbalance of good bacteria to bad bacteria is going to be uh, causing a lot of issues with your bowel movements, impactions for sure, irritable bowel, colon cancers for sure, or family history of polyps, or, um, or if you have a family history of colon cancer, ulcerative colitis, you definitely need to be getting checked, okay? Especially if you start pooping blood. All right, so how do you manage this? What are some, so what are some things that we need to keep in mind? Your basics, fruits and veggies daily, period. I say this all the time for a reason. I mentioned the fiber was so important and we're not talking about Metamucil, right? We're talking about food fiber, right? You want water-soluble, fiber-rich foods like fruits and vegetables. That's gonna help your constipation and you wanna incorporate those things like yesterday if you haven't started, okay? Nuts and seeds are really the next most important thing and then whole grains. So really having a lot of plant-rich, plant-centric foods in your diet to help you with constipation. Avoid foods that are notorious for constipation, all right? So what are those? Dairy, really big. Again, as I said, for infants and toddlers, older children, teens, you must look at dairy if they have constipation. Um, and if, you're, if your pediatrician is not telling you this, then that's a problem. Alcohol, for gluten, actually, gluten for non-celiac gluten sensitivity or even folks with IBS, gluten can actually be a major cause of constipation for folks. So um, again, you can get tested for this. Uh, processed grains, meat heavy diets with low fiber for sure, fried and fast foods, duh. Actually, interestingly enough, persimmons, because they're so astringent, can actually cause constipation. And they're really actually one of my favorite fruits to be, believe it or not. Dry plums or prunes actually have been shown in studies to help. That's why, that's that's like old wives stuff. But yeah, plum juice does work or dried, dried plums or prunes. Coffee can help with some people. Supplement-wise, you may want to look at prebiotics. Uh, inulin can be helpful as a powder, um, not only to move the bowel, but also help build normal flora. It helps feed bifidobacterium.
So usually that has minimal side effects, but remember, this is not a recommendation. You got to talk to your doctor first. Fiber supplements should be more for adults, not for kids. Try getting the kids on the food first, always drinking lots of water. I always say half your body weight in ounces of water. You got to be drinking nonstop. Water is life and it's a big pillar. Fermented foods or even pro probiotics uh, have been shown to be helpful. I've actually uh, seen a lot of different probiotics, even lower quality ones that people were taking help with bowel movements. Um, but again, talk to your do doctor if you're about to supplement. Now, if it's really severe, your doctor, your naturopathic doctor or functional doctor may prescribe some sort of short-term laxative, right? That's a last resort and it needs to be done with a professional. Um, but another intervention that for me is, I feel more comfortable with is even magnesium, right? I did a whole show in the, pa uh, in the past, go back, Go to the magnesium show and find out which is the best form for you for constipation. But magnesium acts as an osmotic laxative, so it pulls that water to soften that stool so you can be pooping more regularly, all right? You gotta move every single day, and if you have the urge to go to the bathroom, go. Don't resist it, right? You don't wanna train your nerves to do something that they're not supposed to be doing. Again, talk to your doc. There's things like bitters, um, the laxative I mentioned. If you have spasm spasmolytic, or the spastic colon, that type of constipation, then there's, uh, there's spasmolytic herbs that help release that tone so you can go to the bathroom. Uh, possibly an enema and squatty potty helps people actually. I saw, I, I've, I've heard many good things about it. So there you go, constipation, you gotta be pooping, take home. I gave you some good advice, good things that you can implement immediately. There's a lot of good books out, out there. There's, um, there's a natural approach to gastroenterology, which is good for any of the students out there by Eric Yarnell. And, um, yeah, I hope this, this portion of the podcast helped. Let's get to the product review. I'm really excited to talk about this. All right, product review time. One of my biggest pet peeves is when I walk into someone's home and it smells like synthetic chemicals, synthetic candles, synthetic plugins, th synthetic air sprays, synthetic perfumes. It drives me crazy because I'm very sensitive to it, right? For me, it manifests as asthma. My respiratory tract will rightfully so close up um, and, it, and it sucks. But um, a lot of other people have different symptoms. I know someone particularly who gets headaches every time they're exposed to it. So what I wanna do is talk about plugins, right? So in the 90s, they got really popular. There's so many commercials, I remember them. Um, and basically what it does is it utilizes heat to start aromatizing that synthetic or chemical scent, right? That's what moves it, that toxic scent is, is being pushed by heat when you plug it in. But it's a surefire way to disrupt your hormones. Whether it's your children's or your dog's, go get a plug-in. And biggest pet peeve is when uh, really that I know that these things are causing damage to people's hormones, their immune system, their nervous system, and they're there, they're all the time. So education is really important around how toxic this stuff is, and I'm about to get into it. It's nauseating, gives me a headache. Um, so cumulatively, it is making your family sick. Uh, and if you have a child who is experiencing allergies, you may wanna think about this first before you think about the birch tree that's outside, okay? So not only does these type of things disrupt hormones, and it's not just the plugins, it's also these air sprays too. Not only do they disrupt hormones, but they're known to cause, as I said, hormonal abnormalities, but birth defects reproductive problems, right? So according to a study done by the Natural Resource Defense Council, they did an independent study. They looked at 14 of the most popular air fresheners and they found 86% of them had phthalates, 
phthalates. And phthalates are really, really concerning, right? We talk about, uh, we talk about hormone disruptors. They're really up on the list. So it's not just the scented ones too. It was also the unscented ones. How? Well, they come aromatically. We breathe them in, but also these particles are uh, land on our skin and they're absorbed. Actually, the state of California notes that five types of phthalates, including the ones that were found in these plugins, and 86% of them are known to cause birth defects and reproductive harm in the state of California. That's crazy. Uh, so we're recommended, uh, actually this group that did the independent study, they recommended to avoid as a whole plugins or these aromatic sprays, and EPA should actually require testing for phthalates for every single one that comes into the market, because that's not happening. So I don't have the ones that that played the worst on this study, but the one, the worst ones were the Walmart air fresheners. That was the worst on the list. There's all different types of all the ones coming from Walmart, but also the ones that have moderate levels of phthalates were the Glade plug-in and some of the Febreze and the Airwicks. Okay. So I went to, where did I get this? There's a place called Vons here in, uh, in, um, in Los Angeles. Might be out of here. I don't know, but it's sort of like um, a conventional supermarket. It's not like a Whole Foods. And I, I got these and I went with my friend who's a medical student and we, we walked into the aisle and she's like, oh my God, I'm getting a headache already. And I believe it. I believe it because my biggest pet peeve is walking into anywhere that smells like the candle section at Target. It's the worst because you can smell how synthetic it is. That's to me is like a big pet peeve. Anyway, I said that before. Um, environmental Working Group. Of course, they're, they're the ones who do the best work when it comes to all of this. And I'm gonna start with the worst of the worst. This is the Glade plugin that I bought. This is the clean linen plugin. This scored an F, right? Really, really low, an F. And this is because of poor disclosure, high volatile organic compounds, right? All that stuff that is really causing tons and tons of stress to the body for you, your children, your dog, your cat, your hamster, whatever it is. And it may contain ingredients with potential for cancer, developmental, endocrine, reproductive effects, and damage to the DNA. So why? Why does anyone even still buy this? Because they don't know. But guess what? Now you know if you are buying it. And if you have it, throw it away. Get it on video, tag me in it, and throw it away. Okay, because this doesn't deserve to be in a household, period. Okay, the next worst is the Airwick. This scored a D. And the Airwick, again, poor disclosure, may contain ingredients with potential for skin irritation, allergies, damage, and it also has a lot of uh, damage to the environment, aquatic damage. But really, this is what we need to look for, skin irritations, allergies, developmental and reproductive issues, cancer. You see, one of the things that I always think about is childhood cancer, right? Um, Certainly it's not because they worked a nine to five and were stressed all their life, but why are children developing cancer? Well, it really starts with the mom and the dad early on in their health. Are they being exposed? What is their toxic load? Or as my friend, Dr. Ralph Esposito calls it, it's allostatic load. How much are we building up to where our homeostatic mechanisms, right? Our balance, how much are we building up so our balance is disrupted? Because once that cup overflows, there's a big issue. We gotta bring it back. It's hard to bring it back after it overflows. But stuff like this adds to your allostatic load every single day. You plug this in, you're not gonna get cancer that day. But I promise you, if this is part of your life, you're predisposing yourself and your children. Okay, the next one, I swear to God, there should be lawsuits against these, these companies. This is just ridiculous that this is sold, but that's, that's how the industry is right now. This is the Glade spray over here, Lemon Fresh Glade spray. 
I remember my mom used to use this stuff sometimes throughout the house. Um, little did we know, right? So Glade Spray, there was poor disclosure, may contain ingredients with potential for devel developmental endocrine, reproductive issues, cancer, damage to the DNA, just from a spray? Yeah, from a spray for sure. And you know, the most at risk are the children or older folks. So this is crap. I'm gonna give you other options, but this is crap. And then Febreze Air, this is Hawaiian Aloha, got a D2 for almost the same reasons as Glade, endocrine issues, reproductive issues, environmental damage, uh, skin issues. And it's really because it has something called a deodorizing agent. That's a big one. It's predisposing you to score skin irritations, allergies, damage, reproductive effects, the same story, but also has fragrance. A lot of these just have that um, ambiguous word, that fragrance, where we don't know how many chemicals are in there, but certainly is causing major issues to the body, okay? All right, so you know how much I dislike these air fresheners and plugins. So what are some other options? Well, there's a diffuser, an essential oil diffuser, but it, it depends on the essential oil it's in there. Now, a few years ago, there's a study that came out about lavender tea tree oil, essential oils uh, leading to hormonal disruption in prepubescent boys um, and causing breast, gynecomastia, breast in these boys. Now. Uh, when you look at the study, and it was in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is very prestigious, right? New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, very prestigious regardless. Um, what I saw was a case report. So very weak study. Um, hard to add exact causation. But they tell me nothing about the brand. They tell me nothing about the quality of essential oils, right? Now, essential oils are something that can be, I'm gonna do a whole show on it too, I promise, but are something that can be tampered and adulterated with big time, right? From sourcing to processing to packaging from everything. So you gotta get good quality essential oils. Now, with that said, I would proceed with caution. If you're diffusing things like cedarwood, fir, grapefruit, lavender, lemon, spearmint, tangerine, eucalyptus, peppermint, um, then, then you may, or tea tree, then you may be uh, predisposing yourself because some of these have compounds that can irritate the respiratory tract, right? So for some folks, not all, but I would really highly recommend to find a company that uses the utmost potential for cleaning and having the highest quality products, right? So then we're thinking, you see, I haven't researched enough into the companies. I hear doTERRA, Young Living are good, even um, Mountain Rose, I think it's called but I promise you all know them inside out. Um, regardless, you gotta do proper research, get on the phone with people, find out, look at, look at research, because if this is gonna be part of your daily life, you wanna make sure that it's the highest grade. Okay, and I will do, like I said, an essential oil show in the very near future, so I'll be doing a lot of the work for you. Um, you can also get the diffuser sticks, which aren't actively making essential oils uh, aromatic, and that, are, that are the sticks that are staying in the um, oil, the little glasses. Um, there's a lot of do-it-yourself stuff for home, right? Bustle had an article that I'll link on here, essential oils, uh, but mixing with pine cones, orange and cinnamon water, Q-tips and different oils. You can do do-it-yourself gel, gel air fresheners, baking soda in jars, different flowers like lilac and rosemary. So the bigger question is this, are you enjoying the synthetic smell or are you masking a smell, right? If you're masking a smell and it's like a moldy smell, then I would really get to the root cause of the mold because that can be causing bigger issues than these things. But if you want just a fresh smell, open your windows and add more of these do-it-yourself clean options because it's day and night. And the whole point of this informed consent, if you're buying this, don't feel bad about it, but now you make a decision where you wanna go with this. So 
with that said, that's the product review. I'm excited to get this uh, special guest on here and talk some really, really important, interesting stuff that for me, I never heard of until I met him. All right, everyone, today's special guest, this guy's so cool. We met at a party and we had a conversation and it blew me away and I said, I need you on my podcast ASAP. So finally, 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 after a few months, we got him here. This is Kevin Rosenblum. He's a biomechanist and orthotist. Never said those words in my life. We're gonna find out what that means. Kevin. <laughs> good to be here. Was that a good intro? Yeah, it was a great intro. Are you satisfied? <laughs> totally. <laughs> so, okay, uh, what, what is an orthotist? I just said that. Can you just explain a little bit about what you do? Because I think what you do is awesome. Uh, so an orthotist is someone who is in the same field as prosthetics. A lot of people are familiar with uh, people who run uh, that have an amputation and they have a prosthetic leg. Yeah. Okay. Um, or if you see a collar around the neck, that's pretty forefront and center. That's mm -hmm. considered uh, a brace or braces on the teeth, you go to an orthodontist. So yeah. an orthotist is someone who specializes in braces for the entire body. Um, I have a specialty uh, with lower extremity. Mm -hmm. So uh, anything from the hip down, I have a further specialty as a pedorthist. Mm -hmm. And then uh, an intensive focus on overall biomechanics. Okay, awesome. Yeah. And bio biomechanics meaning how the body functions, the bones, muscles, the joints, how they move, right? Yeah, um, you know, so there's basically historically two ways of looking at uh, biomechanics in, in different um, specialties. One is the heart valve, okay? So your heart opens and closes these different valves. That's like a whole area in itself, um, not my specialty. The other biomechanical specialty is uh, full body biomechanics, the way joints move, the way muscles move, bones move, how they react to different loads and stresses and forces. Mm -hmm. And which is really interesting in functional medicine is there's um, a kind of like a new development at uh, a cellular level. So cellular biomechanics, loads and strains um, on your cells, mm -hmm. okay? Gravity, uh, movement, strains, all these types of things that um, you do when you move through your environment. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, and I know you're you're passionate about understanding how we react to our environment. So, um, and really interesting about the cells, because uh, you know I do a lot of environmental medicine, so I, I see how it affects cells and different how different chemicals do. It's really a big passion of mine. So, when you say as part of your work and how our environment affects us, you really focus on the lower extremities, right? That's knees. Feet, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so my uh, specialty kind of comes from um, focusing on um, surgery, actually, and backing out of uh, finishing with uh, a surgical program simply because I saw there was a big lack of um, the care that you could take to prevent surgery. Mm -hmm. uh, when you go to a surgeon, very often it's an 85% success rate is essentially the consent that you're signing away for. And I saw a lot of surgeries that went south, mm -hmm. so to speak. So um, if you can stop <clears throat> um, the root cause and go further upstream, uh, at an orthopedic level, we can avoid hip replacements, knee replacements, uh, neuromas, uh, all sorts of different foot surgeries, all, all of these things. When you have a, a traumatic experience in a car accident, of course you need surgery, but when you have elective surgery or surgery from um, a pathology that's not responding to conservative care or taking pills, physical therapy, you know, there's, there's things you can do, physical therapy, changing your environment, changing your behavior to um, address 
the, your aches and your pains and get you more comfortable and, and have a more functional body, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And and you mentioned, you know, knee replacements, hip replacements. It, it, is it important now for us at our age, we're still young, right? Yeah. To, to make interventions. And if so, what type of interventions do we need to pay attention to? Movement, I think, is the biggest takeaway uh, in, in a word. And to um, really make sure that you're uh, introducing kind of like a variety of healthy movements, okay? Um, the biggest thing is, uh, a good example that I tell patients is uh, yoga, okay? Yoga is an amazing activity to be involved with, but one way or another, even um, if they say, and I'm not a yoga expert, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, I participate in it, but I'm I, by no means an expert. Um, People always, or instructors are always telling me, this is your practice. This is your hour with yourself. It's, it's kind mm -hmm. of a spiritual thing. But then I see a lot of patients who have hurt themselves in yoga. Mm -hmm. And I call it competitive yoga, mm -hmm. okay? Because you're in the back of the class and you're looking at the people in the front of the class yeah. and they're putting themselves into these positions that are really uh, difficult to get into. Mm -hmm. And you're pushing and you're pulling on your body and you're trying to get yourself into that position. In the front of the room, you've got a person who's doing these headstands and yeah. really flexible. And do you practice yeah, yoga yourself? It. Yeah, yeah, I do. I've seen exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And then the next thing you know, the guy in the back or the girl in the back of the class is, has hurt themselves mm -hmm. from trying to get into a position. It's like being five feet tall and wanting to dunk a basketball. Yeah. Sorry, you're just not going to be able to do it. Yeah. Or being six foot seven and trying to be on the gymnastics team. Yeah. You're just too tall. You're not going to be able to rotate around. Right. These are the mechanic realities of your genes mm -hmm. and your phenotype that you're presented with, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. so something, so that now, so you mentioned yoga as a movement, right? Not the competitive yoga, which I know you're not a fan of, but just yoga as movement. But are there other movements like, uh, what, what do you think about jogging, exercise, you know, weightlifting? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, understanding who you are, okay, is something that I think uh, we're kind of at the tip of the iceberg or there's going to be in the next generation. Um, I was having a conversation this morning with a new client in Florida and um, recently graduated from uh, med school, had a four-year residency as a surgeon, but he's very into this functional medicine. He's very into um, new methods of treating patients and healthcare and avoiding surgery in this conservative care. And part of that is knowing who you are. So it's one thing to know how tall you are, okay, but it, and it's one thing to know how much you weigh, but it's, it's one thing to know how flexible you are. And sometimes your genes will mesh with your environment. You'll be flexible in one joint but then you won't be so flexible in the next joint, mm -hmm. okay? And that's something that we don't hear a lot about so much. Um, so you have culture, you have uh, basically um, different outside factors that'll put you into certain things and you wanna walk a certain way, as, as odd as that sounds, right. okay? Or you'll wanna do a cool activity like play soccer, mm -hmm. okay, because your friends are doing it, but you may not be so suited to play soccer. And the next thing you know, you've hurt yourself, mm -hmm. when maybe you should be playing tennis or maybe you should be, um, you know, doing yoga instead, yeah. or maybe you should be skiing, yeah. or maybe you should be running, mm -hmm. or if you're a runner, maybe you shouldn't be running, yeah. okay? So knowing what your body is um, best at in its environment is, is kind of uh, a takeaway, and um, it's not easy. And I think if you kind of look back at children when they're um, really young, you have a parent, and you're essentially put into all sorts of different activities. Um, and it's almost like throwing pickles at a wall. What does my child like to play? Okay. Mm -hmm. And the child may like, may not like to do anything except play video games. Usually it's kind of because they don't feel successful with what they're doing. Mm -hmm. 
right. and but they feel successful at video games or they feel successful in drawing or playing music or some something like that. And so <clears throat> you size yourself up. Psychology, you're going to kind of look at the playing field, look at your friends, and if you're really good at playing soccer, you're going to be like, ooh, I like soccer. I'm like the best kid on the field. Or I have a couple buddies. We just dominate. We do really well. That's yeah. what goes on with mm-hmm. a kid who's 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 years old. By the time you're 13 or 14 years old, you've kind of like found your sport and you're pretty good at it. You're in high school. You know, yeah. you kind of know where you're at. Does that, does that kind of... Yeah, it does. So having, so you're saying having an awareness or let's say, because there's a lot of parents who listen to the show, having an awareness of what your kids are good at or or what they prefer or understanding the psychology behind that before they go into certain things so as to not injure themselves. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, yeah exactly. You want to put a round peg in a round hole. Yeah. You want to do the activity that's built for your, your body. Mm-hmm. And um, having that awareness and... Um, it's not easy. And it's yeah. something that's, that's very new. So it's something that I'm intensively working on to give a guide and give an exam. Uh, so this exam is called biomechanical intelligence, and it essentially allows a clinician to measure a patient. And at the end of these uh, measurements, consider it an x-ray or an MRI or a CT scan or a blood test. You get numbers and you get values, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. And you essentially have a static... Um, picture, a snapshot. A, a biomechanical intelligence exam shows the joint articulations and the morphology or the shape of your body. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, for instance, there's a, a great statistic that if you are 203 centimeters tall and you have a wingspan of 203 centimeters, there's a one in six chance you're a professional basketball player. That's and if crazy. You, yeah. So, and if you have a wingspan uh, from middle finger to middle finger, when you spread your arms, over 205 centimeters, you're, there's a one in three chance you're a professional basketball player, okay? Mm. So that's like a pretty good example. If you're five foot tall and you want to be a gymnast, sorry, you're too tall. You need to be four foot tall, four foot 11 to get on the Olympic team, wow. okay? So these are like the elite athletes, okay? But understanding what child should my, or what sport should my child play, That'd be really interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So as to prevent injuries or anything, it could be even catastrophic in many ways to some kids. Preventing injury also for boosting self-esteem. Yeah, okay. for sure, for, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm built to do this. Yeah, exactly, and excelling yeah. really well in that, in that mm-hmm. sport. Yeah, I personally was not good at football, but I was good at lacrosse, which was interesting, right? Like, uh, it's different. You're still running, but there is different points of contact different movements, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it was really interesting to, to and, see that. And I, I played lacrosse as well. I was not very good at it. Yeah. Um, but you know, offhand, the list of things we have for lacrosse um, is basically eye-hand coordination. Yeah. Okay, being able to spot a small ball like that, put it in the pocket is yeah. really important. For sure. Okay, and reacting. Yeah. And that baseball is that way. Yeah, exactly. Whereas football is less so, right? Especially if you're not even touching the ball. Right, and you're just hitting people. But uh, I, I think I think it's really interesting that you're starting to bring out this conversation because we sort of like want to do a one size fits all. They're like, okay, let's do this. I should be playing this. This is what all my friends are doing, right? It messes up your self-esteem. Totally. Right? Yeah, totally. And, and I'm sure that, I mean, that's happened to a lot of people. So you said it's pretty difficult to really identify like biomechanically what is made for you. Um, really, we have measurements like height and weight but um, and flexibility. Right, so I guess people need to be more in touch with their bodies to understand 
maybe I'm not as flexible. Even if I do yoga for like a year, I'm not as flexible as, you know, my best friend. Maybe we're built to do different things, uh, exercise-wise or regimens. Right. Right. Um, do you, so, so how does this tie in? Because I know one big passion of yours is like our whole lineage of our history, which is, which really blew my mind when we spoke about it. How do you tie this in? Because is it how we were walking throughout throughout our history, evolutionarily, how we changed. Like, let's go into that because, man, that's some good, good, good stuff. Yeah, and I, and I can talk about this for a really long time. You yeah, know, I'll try and make this. It now. Yeah, and I'll try and make this brief. Um, where you know, if if when I look at a patient, I look back at about three and a half billion years of evolution because it's safe to say that we've all kind of come from a single cell. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then when you get to the sea squirts okay, about a half a billion years ago, which are our relatives. And you look at primates, which kind of our ancestors essentially, I shouldn't, I don't know, you have to be cautious when I say ancestors, okay. Our relatives, meaning cousins, um, figure 65 million years ago, this is right around when the dinosaurs were extinct, okay. It took about 40 million years ago for the rodents that were underground during this massive extinction. There's like six massive extinctions, okay, mm-hmm. on earth. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so these big catastrophic events, and one of the hypotheses or one of the theories is essentially that there was this massive uh, collision with uh, something that came out of space kind of around where Mexico is, um, you know, around 265 uh, million years ago, okay? And you've heard of this maybe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <clears throat> okay. Yucatan Peninsula, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. So um, the mammals that were around okay, um, went underground. So like rat tests in laboratories, how, you know, scientists say, you know, hey, we're very similar. People have to say, hey, there's, we're testing rats or mice and things like that. We're genetically, we're very close to these guys, okay? So it took about 20 million years for us to have uh, a relative that was in a tree that had prehensile capabilities, which is the hands are gripping the the tree trunks, okay? And then it took about, till about eight million years ago when we had our primate ancestors coming out of the trees, you know, you see the evolution of us walking on fours, looks like a chimpanzee in this evolution yeah. graph or infograph, yeah. so to speak. And then they start walking upright, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and that happened anywhere from eight million to about six million years ago, okay? So you have like this monkey type foot situation and you've got hips that have changed and you basically have to look at this uh, divergence evolution. So if uh, a couple of people get together and they have, let's say, five kids, but there's a mutation with one of them where they've got a more efficient foot that it can walk longer and further and is able to gather more resources, more food, Mm -hmm. okay? And let's see the other ones kind of, they don't survive because they can't get enough food. And then the one that is able to walk further and longer and gather food is getting together with someone else who's able to have uh, more success in gathering resources. And so as the climate has changed and as resources have changed, um, you have um, over hundreds of thousands of generations, essentially a selection of getting different um, um, presentations of, the, of the, your phenotype, right? Mm-hmm. Um, genetics change and you, you're left with essentially all the way to us now where it, about 200,000 years ago, okay, we went from walking upright, um, 
there's Australopithecus, which maybe you've heard of Lucy. Yeah. Okay, that's like a skeleton that's one of the most famous skeletons. Most people have heard of Lucy. Um, she was Australopithecus, and it was about uh, hominid, which was about uh, two million years ago, Homo erectus, and then you have Homo habilis, Homo heidelbergensis, in that order, before you get to Homo sapien. A cousin of ours is Homo neanderthal, which um, were kind of... Uh, thinking this is a cousin of ours um, mm -hmm. coming off of Homo heidelbergensis. So there's a lot of different um, uh, lineages that are out there that uh, basically uh, are being intensively studied, okay? Looking at fossil records, really all we have is, is bones left over, okay? And it's, it's something like one out of a million is a, is a statistic that I kind of uh, agree with. Um, bones that are available actually turn into fossils. That's one out of a million bones. Wow. So there's not too much yeah. out there, okay? <clears throat> but um, there is a lot out there, and there's a lot that's being studied. And um, what's interesting, so I, I'll, forgive me, I'm, I'm going to bring this up to why this is relevant to us. So here we are as a species, and I just got back from South Africa, and I was at Pinnacle Point. And um, Pinnacle Point is one of these, um, one of seven hotspots where there's a lot of activity and when I say activity, that means there's essentially a lot of shells, a lot of bones from all sorts of different animals, and early Stone Age hand axes, mm -hmm. meaning very evident in caves where there were our uh, relatives, or I should say, at this point, 200,000 years ago, I can say our um, ancestors, Homo sapiens, that were hunting, gathering, a paleo-type diet, and... Um, had developed a very efficient uh, mechanism from their hips down to their feet through many generations of mutations, okay? It started to develop their brain, their hands, their facial characteristics, um, all the different things, um, very close to who we are today. Um, so um, you have essentially modern history, you've got the agricultural revolution, these are like, um, you know, Going back, you have uh, the cognitive revolution, all these different revolutions, okay, mm -hmm. where there was advancement in Homo sapien cooperation. You have essentially uh, overlap with the Neanderthals living at the same time of us, and all of a sudden all the Neanderthals were extinct. Why or how did that happen, okay? <clears throat> What's applicable to us today is that you have this incredible body that if you understand the story of how we've kind of evolved over such a huge time span, okay, um, in such a short amount of time, in our lifetime, um, in your parents' or your grandparents' lifetime, are, are you in touch with your grandparents or your great-grandparents? Getting dead, but okay. But I, I wish I was, yeah. Okay, so you hear stories, you see it on Hollywood, you can read about these yeah. types of things about what life was like. And so in the past, say 500 years, or even 2,000 years, life has changed so dramatically. In the most in, um, applicable thing to the lower extremity, um, is the invention of the wheel. Okay, so think of the agricultural revolution. This is about 13 to 10,000 years ago when we started a plant mm -hmm. um, and domesticate uh, rather than gathering. It took about 4,000 years for us to stop taking camels essentially and bringing our bounty to the center of town to say, okay, let me pull something behind the camel mm -hmm. and, they, and you invented a wheel. So the oldest wheel we have is in like Mesopotamia. It's about 6,000 years old. And that's right about the time when we started to have roads built. And when roads were built, <clears throat> you're all of a sudden changing the, the, the ground that you're walking on. You have a substrate, 
Okay. Right. right. So in, in the UK around uh, 6,000 years ago, you have something that's called a corduroy road. So they took wood and they laid it down where it was muddy. So the wheel didn't get stuck in the ground. They just laid wood, you know, branch after branch after branch. And this is how you could take the wooden wheel over the laid down corduroy right. road, if you can imagine what that looks like. Mm -hmm. I can. And then you have different stone type roads 4,000 years ago. And then you have different advancements for water drainage. Okay. And the Romans, about 2,000 years ago, were able to come up with uh, the Roman gladiator sandals. It's kind of fashionable for women to wear these types of sandals, but this is the first time that something was really solid and stable that goes underneath the foot and actually stabilizes the foot. And so the Roman army was able to put this um, rigid lever essentially under your foot, okay? So in your foot, you have 33 joints, okay? 14 of them are in your toes, which they're kind of like left over from gripping trees, and they're important, but the more interesting stabilizing joints, you have 19 of these joints from the hind foot to the midfoot. This is in your ankle, below your ankle, from your ankle to your, the ball of your foot. You have all these little, they kind of look like Legos, okay? Like, like little knee joints, little, you know, ball and socket, semi-hemi, you know, joints, and they've been, they're, they're there and they were developed to articulate on uneven ground. So if you ever go barefoot, in the sand and you notice how your foot sloshes around and you really kind of are at the mercy of the ground, you have all these muscles. You have eight muscles in your feet. You have about 28 muscles that originate at the knee, just above or just below the knee within a couple of inches that insert into the foot. And you've got uh, a total of 58 muscles around your hips that originate at the hips to stabilize the knee. Okay, so this is a lot of kind of like, uh, control mechanisms to stabilize yeah. yourself. You're really like a Jeep, okay? Mm -hmm. you're, you're like a four by four vehicle designed to walk on uneven surfaces. Yeah. So the invention, okay, and this is this has happened over eight million years, okay? Walking upright bi bipedally. Okay, so put mm -hmm. that into perspective. Mm -hmm. Eight million. Okay, eight million years. And just 6,000 years ago, we invented roads. And all of a sudden, the ground we've been walking on is really rigid and totally different. And it puts a different load at a cellular level onto all of our tissue, our bone tissue, the cartilage between our bones, the um, frequency that our muscles and our tendons uh, need to stabilize us because we don't have this um, physical reaction from one tissue to the next that we've had for millions of years as animals. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's, that's a big change. Yeah, and it's, is it affecting then the way that we are evolving now or, or the way that just, just the strength of our feet is now affecting our knees, our hips, because you're right, I'll go to the beach and I'm like, oh, well, I'm going this way, I'm going this way, I'm going up, I'm going down. It's so hard to run on a beach, you know, um, and I'm there every day. And I, I pay attention to the way my feet are moving accordingly. But um, yeah, how's it affecting us now? Well, it's interesting. Um, most of us in the civilized world are born and we're, we're given socks and shoes. And you immediately in those early development years don't develop your feet like you could. It's kind of like a feral child, yeah. okay? And you're familiar with these feral yeah, children yeah. that don't have the, um, yeah. okay. So after a certain age, they just don't learn how to speak. Well, after a certain age, you kind of settle into who you are and that's what you're dealing with, okay? So some certain events like wearing shoes that are too small or playing certain sports and you develop yourself and your pheno developing your phenotype okay, which is the physical presentation of your body using the genetic code. Mm -hmm. So for instance, you were born to be totally symmetrical. Your mm -hmm. code says 
both of us should be completely symmetrical, but right. do you have one arm that's stronger than the other? Yeah, okay. for sure. Okay, so that is an example of phenotype. So you've developed a, a stronger strength due to the environmental loads that you've put on that mm. side of the arm, mm. if, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So by the time you're 11 and 12, you're really starting to mature into yourself. That's why braces for your teeth, did you have braces mm -hmm. on your teeth? Mm -hmm. You got them probably when you were that age, 11 yeah, and 12. Yeah. That's when the growth plates kind of come in. All these movements, all these activities, uh, really at that age, all these elite athletes, they figured out that they were gonna be elite athletes by that time and then they pursue that for the next 10 years. And from 23 to 33, that's like the prime where yeah. you see these elite athletes just doing really great, give or take, some's higher, some a little bit lower. Yeah. There's a uh, there's an estrogen which controls um, the blasts and the clasts for the bones, for instance, but essentially all the other tissue. Where around 27 for females and around the age of 25 for males, you stop uh, your estrogen kind of starts to drop off and you stop reproducing yourself and maturing yourself. So that's really kind of I feel like man, if you can if you can really take advantage up until you're about 25 years old and kind of mold who you're going to be. That's where you're, you're kind of setting yourself up to be that person for the next 75 years. Yeah. If that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Like, uh, from a physical standpoint, correct? Yeah. Physical yeah, standpoint. From physical, yeah. yeah. Um, which is why I, I always encourage, uh, people with young kids to have them be outside running around barefoot, just doing, just moving always in some capacity, because we just talked about like sedentary is, is the, is the thing. That's like the new smoking, right? They're saying, um, so totally and totally knock on wood for me in the, in those 20, in my twenties, I was always working out, always running, always doing something, some sort of sport. Yeah. So knock on wood, that's laid down some good groundwork till I'm 90 years old or something like that. Yeah. Um, but I think it's really interesting what you're saying. Um, so are you suggesting then we take off our shoes as much as possible and walk on uneven surfaces daily or what? You know, I kind of got sidetracked a little bit, um, and I wanted to tell you a story about um, what you what you do, and, and, and with, with the barefoot, you go to the beach, you're walking barefoot. Not, right. not everyone lives by a beach, right. and they can do that, especially with temperature yeah. um, being a, a consideration. And uh, I was in Hawaii, and I came across my friend Luan. I uh, didn't know him, met him, good friend now. And um, he was born in Brazil, but he moved to Hawaii when he was five. and he has never really worn shoes. And so I have these wonderful videos of him that are recorded running down this trail. Now it's important to know that this trail was not graded. It was not a rock trail. Okay, so if you go to like a dirt road where you've, they've brought in rocks that have been selected to be a certain size, yeah. okay? Yeah. Or you've come to a certain area where, you know, if you were developed where, or you developed near a younger age uh, where there was a lot of sand versus in England where there was like, you know, not so much sand, it was hard bedrock and uh, grass and, and things like that. Mm. Um, you're gonna really kind of adapt to whatever you were walking on between those ages up to your 13 and then really kind of like solidify and mature in yeah. your mid twenties. So here's Luan and he's running down this trail, completely barefoot, leaping. I mean, you wouldn't even believe, and I have this video in slow-mo, is he's just, I mean, just huge leaps running at the top speed, Downhill, okay. So wow. he's so he's going. We're going down to the beach, yeah. and he's he's been doing this since he was five. Yeah. And here I am, <laughs> trying to do the same thing. My friends, we're just it, it's. There's no way we could even keep up with him. No way. Yeah, and so there's 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 a lot of people out there who've been 
you know, walking around barefoot. You know, I was just in South Africa. There were a lot of people walking around barefoot, and they can stand these very sharp uh, ground surfaces, yeah. um, which most of us can't deal with at all. We just don't have the stability and weighing. Uh, you know, we've we've developed with a brace on our feet, mm-hmm. shoes. Mm-hmm. So, and in socks, socks are another big deal. They scrunch our toes. It doesn't allow like freedom for our toes to splay out at all. Right. Right. Okay. So having a high heel, having shoes on from a young age um, really limits these stabilizing muscles and kind of puts you into a smaller cone or a smaller area. And then your body ends up having overuse injuries. And we, I see it all the time. I mean, this is in, in the orthopedic world, in the uh, podiatry world, in the orthopedic surgeons uh, world or in, their, in, in our clinics, in the physical therapy clinics, dealing with musculoskeletal pathology, whether it's plantar fasciitis, metatarsalgia, runner's knee, Mm -hmm. hip replacements, knee replacements, um, different muscles being torn. You know, very often it's like an immediate, you know, hey, we tore uh, a tendon or we we had a sprain, we ruptured a ligament, okay? We've always been operating within this certain mechanical range of motion, Mm -hmm. okay? But now all of a sudden you've had this uh, event where like, let's go back to yoga, You've been operating, you know, let's say you're running, you're playing basketball, and then all of a sudden you're doing a yoga class and you put yourself in a position that you have never really done before, and all of a sudden you pull something and you, you stretch that tissue beyond its stress limit. So this is an approach which is a really, really great way to look at musculoskeletal pathology. We have a tissue stress approach. So whenever you go beyond the tissue's available stress limits, it fails, okay? Little tiny micro tears, yeah. okay? If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It does. That does. And and I, I see. I'm starting to see the full picture now. Uh, it's really important for us. So so really, take home is from a young age. If you have kids, get your kid out there barefoot. Different uneven surfaces. Can we <coughs> develop those muscles for us? I I remember um, a guest of mine, Aaron Alexander, had mentioned to maybe put rocks under your desk at work and take off your shoes and just start stimulating those nerves. Oh, I love by that. By touching those different surface rocks, some smooth, some, you know, rocky ones. Um, is, is there anything else that we can, like, develop more to our true nature? Because that's what I, I want to bring people back to their true nature, eating, moving, all these things are really important, sleeping. Um, is there any suggestions that you can make for us how we can better ourselves? Start slow is one because you don't want to overexert yourself and do a movement that you're not used to. Um, there's an old saying that, you know, before you, <laughs> I love this, but, but before you start an exercise program, consult with your doctor, okay? Mm-hmm. That, frankly, I think totally needs to be reversed. And I didn't come up with this, someone else's. Before you um, stop having an exercise program, consult your doctor. No. You really need to be moving all the time. Right. Okay. So if you've been sedentary for a while and, and you're, you've kind of got a fire um, inside of you that says, okay, I'm going to make a change in my life, just make sure you start slow and you listen to your body and you take it easy and don't compare yourself to anyone else. Right. Okay. Um, that's, that's really the number one most important thing to do is just take it slow. Uh, your friend uh, who 
who's on the show was talking Aaron. about putting yeah. Aaron, who's you know putting rocks underneath uh, the desk. That's so great. I mean, it, there's th something called earthing where you connect to the earth. Mm -hmm. um, you have uh, the neuromuscular stimulation of the rocks. If you're doing this without any socks, that's great. Have it right up against your skin. Yeah. Um, you can certainly walk barefoot, but it's important to understand when you walk barefoot, or like I'm in kind of a zero drop, an ultra shoe right now. Mm -hmm. We're, we're not walking on bare ground. So um, have you have you seen a lot of this barefoot movement? You've talked to a lot of these barefoot yeah. type of people? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so you have to be really careful because if you take 5,000 steps a day or 10,000 steps a day barefoot on asphalt and concrete, or just let's say you're just in your house yeah. for a day yeah. and, you're, and you work from home yeah. or you're working in an office and you're able to walk around barefoot on concrete, that ground is not bare. Mm. You evolved over millions of years walking on varied terrain. Mm -hmm. So there's these great videos of the aboriginals and this was the British recording aboriginals walking around and doing a documentary, I think it's 80 years ago, don't quote me that, mm -hmm. more or less 80 years ago, maybe 100 years ago, okay. And I was watching this and I'm looking at the aboriginals walk and they are walking totally different. So you have that argument for, let's say the runners out there. If you're a runner, it's like, oh, do you do ball striking first or you come in with the heel contact or is it a mid strike? Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, in the running world, we just did a sub two hour marathon about seven weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Okay. In Vienna, that was a pretty interesting event. Um, but the reality is, is that whether or not it's a ball striker or a heel striker depends on you. It depends on your shape and it depends on the surface that you're walking on. Mm -hmm. So there's no right or wrong answer. The answer is yes. Mm -hmm. You can walk on all these different surfaces. You can walk all these different ways. A variety of movements is really important. Yeah. In the, in the diet space, um, you know, you hear now, you know, a variety or I think, uh, I, I can't recall if it was your podcast or another podcast, it was a, is there a, a human uh, species specific diet? Okay. Uh, that wasn't mine. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and the answer is there really isn't a species specific diet. It's the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's what suits you best. Right. So trying different things and finding what suits you, what, what makes you feel good, what gives you the most happiness. Right. Um, but getting out there and moving is really, really important. Huge. Yeah. And that's, that's what it comes down to. I mean, yeah. sitting is the new smoking. Of course, um, if you sit, you're not using your body. It was designed at a cellular level. We need to be loading ourselves. You know, when the astronauts go to the moon, they come back, they're totally atrophied. Mm -hmm. Okay. Totally yeah. atrophied. It's crazy to see that. Yeah. I, you know, I was talking with one of the employees of SpaceX, worked very close with uh, the CEO. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were saying, you know, what, do, what the heck are we going to do? What are they thinking? We're going to go to Mars? We're going to occupy other planets? This is so far off there because the body has spent a billion years mm -hmm. adapting to this Earth, mm -hmm. 9.8 meters squared, the acceleration of gravity. Take an astronaut, give them to the moon. You, you have all these problems. How are you going to create artificial gravity? I mean, it's just maybe we could do it, but it seems very far off, even for the people that are very close to these yeah. uh, entities that are trying to get to different planets yeah. and survive. Yeah. So the amount that we've evolved and how quickly we've uh, we've changed our environment in the past 100 years that's or even 6,000 years just with the invention of roads, that's pretty significant. Mm -hmm. And I see it in my practice all the time. I see, we see all these different pathologies, people that have all these these pains, professional athletes. They, yeah. I mean, the most, the highest paid professional athletes in the United States or the world coming to see me and they've got something that's going on because they're overusing something or use, they're using it the wrong way. They have financial pressure, family pressure, or they're putting pressure on themselves to perform. Yeah. <clears throat> um, 
or it's someone who's dealt with a pathology, they just want to walk again, okay, due to a car accident or due to a stroke or cerebral palsy, multiple sclerosis, mm -hmm. all these things to adapt to what's going on and to adapt to your environment. Yeah, it's incredible stuff. So, so I think a big takeaway that I keep thinking about is how there's been eight, six to eight million years of evolution. And then in the very short term, we just threw all these monkey wrenches in there for our convenience, right? And, and it's, it's made a lot of positive changes, but maybe it's affected the way we are interacting with our environment, right? And we're not evolving how we were. And getting back into nature and, you know, getting those, that stimulus and that movement on the feet, right, is going to have overall effects in the whole body, not just, you know, your knee down, right? It's, it's a full body thing. We're just a big mechanical thing moving around with, with connecting gears, correct? Totally. I, there was a, a patient that contacted me this week. Um, she's, a, she's a medical professor, she's a doctor as well. She, um, she was gonna have surgery on her hips and she wanted to do everything to avoid surgery. She yeah. had had some other surgeries. Um, she had Ehlers-Daniels syndrome, mm -hmm. uh, excuse me, Ehlers-Daniels syndrome or um, EDS, pretty popular mm -hmm. situation. Basically uh, is a connective tissue disorder where you're very lax. Okay, and very flexible. And she was she was going in to have surgery. Um, that was the plan. But we looked at her mechanics and we saw there was a, some kind of kind of in front of a mirror and kind of looked measuring the hips, measuring the shape of the femur, measuring the shape of the knee, measuring the shape of the tibia, the lower leg, the talus, which is your this little ball that's in your ankle. Then you have your calcaneus, your heel bone. Okay, you've got your mid-tarsal joints, the navicular, the cuneiforms, the cuboids, your metatarsals, and Back your phalanges. Anatomy. Back to anatomy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So all these things are relative, and they're all the morphology and the shape of them is really unique. It's unique as faces. Yeah. Okay. And so sometimes you have this really weird anomaly where one little tiny shape is going to affect the next shape is going to affect the next shape. So the body is like Jenga. Mm. So one little block out of place. And then go walk on it ten thousand steps a day, mm -hmm. and all yeah. of a sudden you have a labrum tear. I see. I okay, see. so she's going in for labrum reconstructive labrum surgery, and we look at her feet, and she's very loose, and she has to rely on her muscles. When you have, when you're ligamentally lax, the ligaments hold your bones together. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the muscles control the bones, but you can substitute when you have like really weak uh, or very lax ligaments. The the muscles will help stabilize from bone to bone and substitute ligaments. Sometimes if the reverse happens, people re rely on the ligaments, okay? And then pathology happens, right. okay? So when we, we took a careful look and we realized what was going on at the foot, it totally stopped the excessive wear on the hip joint. Wow. Okay, so with a slight adjustment in the way that she walked, a specific type of shoe and a specific type of orthotic, we were able to get her into a more comfortable situation and her pain in her hip subsided. She didn't need to have surgery. That's incredible. Just, and she was about to get a full-blown surgery. Yeah, just a labor wow. repair. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's just, that's just amazing to hear. This goes for meniscus problems. This goes for uh, tendon repairs. This goes for arthritis. Mm -hmm. Arthritis is, all, when, I mean, when I was looking and learning this, it was arthritis, you can't repair it and you need to have it cleaned up. We need to have a little surgery. We need to remove the bone spur. Uh, we. If it's really bad, we need to do a fusion of the joint if it's in the foot and all these things mm -hmm. or a total knee replacement or a hip replacement. How many people do you know? A who've few, had, more than a few. Okay, that yeah. have hip replacements, knee replacements. You're over 65. Yeah. It's, it, the numbers are incredible. Yeah, okay. yeah, it's pretty incredible. So to think that you could just make one small change in a person's foot 
and it can affect upstream, all that stuff. Totally. Amazing. Totally. So and even, the, even the other thing that's really fascinating to me is uh, something I call cultural gate. Okay. So <clears throat> if you and I were to go to New York and we were to get off the plane and we were to walk through JFK, we would look around and we subconsciously would adjust our gate to be New Yorkers. They're beelining it. Get out of here. They're bent over. Well, where are you from? Yeah, yeah, I'm from New York. You're from New York. Yeah, did you hear that? Get out of here. No, that okay, was okay, okay, <laughs> all right. So you, you bend over a little bit more, just a degree. It's right. very subtle, yeah. but it's as subtle as going to Texas and then the difference between Dallas and Houston, the accent and the voices. It's a cultural talk and you talk with around your people. You want to fit in. Yeah. We're homo sapiens. We want to fit in. So you adjust your walk. Like here in Santa Monica, I walk across the crosswalk and my hips are pushed forward. I'm looking at my cell phone. My shoulders are back and I'm taking my time. Now get a New Yorker immediately here and they want to run this person over in the crosswalk. But that's the culture here. That's the culture in LA. It's relaxed. You're taking your time. Yeah. If we got on a plane, we went to Cairo. It's a totally different culture gate. They lift their knee much higher up and they have like a step gate. They land with the ball, their foot first. When I was there in 2004 for the first time, I was, I was 24, I was taking foot, you know, all these, uh, I thought I was like a National Geographic guy with my camera, yeah. with my Kodak camera, okay? Yeah. And I was taking all these pictures. I go back and I look at them, my, uh, the guy that I was with and all these people I took pictures of wow. are walking with the step gate. Wow. I've been there again and looked around. Sure enough, this is the culture. So it's just like accents in our voice. Mm. You can adjust the way you walk. Now, for instance, there's, a, there's a, something about walking straight, okay? People wanna walk with their feet straight. Or young girls nowadays, they look at models. Back in the day, the generation prior, models would stand with their feet, one was turned out, the shoulder was forward, the other shoulder back, yeah. one arm straight. That you looked really 90s when oh, you did that thanks. pose. Thanks, appreciate yeah. that. Okay, check this out. Now, all the models, you see them, you go flip through oh, one of these magazines. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're towed in. Their feet are towed in. Maybe I heard someone, one of my patients say, oh, that's because we want to look slimmer. When you tow in, it makes you look slimmer. So now you go to the high school or you go to UCLA and you look around and you see what the, how the girls are walking. They're mimicking what they see. It's a cultural gait. Now, let's say the shape of your hip doesn't work so well for you to be turned in, but you're forcing yourself to turn in because it looks better. All of a sudden, you've got some other link in the chain, whether it's your knee or your foot, that is getting worked harder and that fails eventually. So let's say one part of your knee is getting worked every step you take, that collision, that compression in the knee joint, okay? And then it, you're forcing your, rather than to use the full surface area, let's say you have 10 centimeters of surface area, okay? 10 centimeters squared, but you're only using two or three centimeters. You should be distributing that load across all 10 centimeters. Mm -hmm. If we didn't have hard ground, you'd be forced to use all these different centimeters right. every step you would take. Around, yeah. You would be moving around. The load would come through your foot, the load would come down from your head, through your spine, to your pelvis, down your legs, down into the foot, and every step you take would be a little bit different. You've got this beautiful articulation, like a four by four vehicle, yeah. but we're walking on a racetrack, right. and we're doing the same exact movement over and over and over again. Wow. All of a sudden, arthritis. And, and the incredible thing is cultural gate, like you said, they may, uh, certain people, person to person, might not be made for that particular movement or adaptable like the other person, and then that's putting more pressure, boom, an injury. There was a light bulb that went off when I saw these aboriginals walking. Yeah. One guy was walking like a duck, mm -hmm. and he was standing like a duck. The guy next to him in this picture that was 100 years old was pigeon-toed in like this 
and walking pigeon-toed. They've never seen a mirror. Wow. They see all the variety of people walking different ways, and they don't have a celebrity saying, this is how you should right. walk. It's so subconscious. So that was not their cultural gate. There was no influence. People are that. just doing them to feel wow. they're, they're, they're totally in a different state of wow. mind. That's interesting. They're just doing them. Okay, and they're not affected by a magazine or they're not affected. That's such a new thing. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a, man, the, these aboriginal, the indigenous people, I, I heard some wonderful thing where if you had an interest in being a leader, you were never a leader. The most humble guy is the one that was always elevated to being a leader in some of these indigenous tribes. Mm -hmm. So just one, one way of kind of looking at our culture, not having. God, there's so many so, different factors than more than just, you know, what we're stepping on. There's just so much. Um, yeah, I, look, I, we need another hour with you, but we got to cut it short because sure. we already got an hour. So you got to come back. Sounds okay, good. Let's do it in the summer. Uh, we'll get you back in here. And when you see me that time, we'll do it barefoot, the show. Right? Okay, sounds good. And uh, all right, so where can the uh, listeners or the viewers find you if they need to work with you or want to learn more or look at videos or something like that? Yeah, sure. Uh, our website is kevinorthopedic.com. Um, we have an institute in Santa Monica. Uh, we also provide services to physicians from New York, Florida, all over uh, the country, essentially, where we have, um, if you email us, hello at kevinorthopedic.com, we can help you find someone who uh, will put you through a biomechanical intelligence exam. And so this is a very comprehensive exam that's conservative. It's not invasive. It's not, um, really, it's just a, a beautiful exam to figure out who you are and kind of look at uh, the unveiling and look at your mechanics, um, how you stack up as a, as a set of Jenga blocks, but your bones and your ligaments, your muscles, yeah. if yeah. that makes sense. It, amazing. So, and we can, we can learn more about ourselves biomechanically, awesome for athletes, but awesome just for the general population who, you know, want to be able to biomechanically be at their best. It's, it's all about longevity. Yeah. It's, it's about the quality. It's not living longer, but it's having a very quality filled life. No pain, and, no, nothing like yeah, that. Yeah. And life performance. That's what we're going for, a higher life performance. Okay. Yeah. All right, man. Thank you for coming in, and I will be seeing you in the summer. We're already going to book you, and I appreciate this conversation, man. You're amazing. You too, Christian. Thank you. All right. What a great interview. I really, 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 at certain, if you heard me quiet, it's because I was just taking it all in because... It's so interesting to hear different perspectives on different things in life. And again, that's the type of people I'll bring in. People who give us perspectives that we ain't never heard of, but how we can apply those to our lives. So really, really awesome interview. I'm glad that you all listen. I'm glad that you all rate. I'm glad that you all subscribe. I'm glad that you all tell your friends about it because of you. This show is growing. I love you all. And I'll see you next week.